Oh, God. What's in the news today? Depressed podcast star drinks himself to death. Don't be stupid. You're not a star. And being fat will kill you before the drinking does. Oh, you sure to mount some spay tonight? Anyway, guys, we're going to announce some big news, which is that after three years of this podcast being a labour of love, we have sold out by introducing commercial sponsorship. Mm. You see, I often think, do I want to work with one of the truly legendary podcasters? But then I think, no, I'd rather work with this lot because... Well, they've sold out. We're making a quick buck. I don't want to be doing this forever. Well, actually, I do want to be doing it forever. I want respect, and I'm not going to get it by doing a camp quote-based podcast with a quiz where the answer's always wrong, where we do a cheap, cheesy, blooming commercial tie-in. Give me something credible. Danny, with all due respect, I don't think Joe Rogan is going to be sitting in his hotel room one night, flicking through Spotify, turn on Wern and Blog, hear you doing impressions of a man with a wig and glasses, and think, wow, I found my next guest star to turn my new series into a blockbuster. There are a limited number who will be famous and have respect, and you will never be one of them. Okay, fine. I just want to make a load of money as quickly and easy as possible. Well, now that I can work with. Have you heard of Beer 52? They're the world's largest beer club. For a monthly subscription, members receive a different case of unique craft beers every month, which includes eight beers, two snacks, and a magazine. So, different perks for different needs. And every month is a new theme, such as Belgium, Korea, California, so... All the big names. You can pause or cancel at any time. So, New Zealand. <laughs> so Yeah, all right. I'll, I'll go for a Beer 52 subscription with you. Give me an email Thursday after the podcast recording. You don't need an email, Danny. Just type in www.beer52.com forward slash Wern and Blog with two Gs. And you can start your subscription with a free case of eight beers and we make a sweet, sweet profit. <laughs> you say free, how much do they actually have to pay? Well, Danny, with that exclusive Wern and Blog link... Subscribers will only have to pay postage of five ninety five, and you get that free starter pack. Five ninety five. Are you having a laugh? Are you having a laugh? Are you having a laugh? <laughs> 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 I'm reading about it. I know what you're thinking. It's not funny. You know, it's crass. It's lowest compliment. Who is this misogynistic The thick demographic. That's what I'm going for. I'm dignified from every age. I don't get it. Welcome to a very special episode of the Wern and Blog podcast. My name's James and with me, the usual suspects, we've got Danny, Jack and Seth, and this time a very special guest, Mr. Stephen Merchant. Hello, Stephen. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, gentlemen. Yes, lovely to talk to you. Thank you. I was expecting a round of applause, like sort of Steve Wright in the afternoon, but... Uh, no, 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 don't do it now. Yeah, it's just patronising. I can edit that in, Steve, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Would you yeah. Wembley or Madison Square Garden sound effects? Yeah. I'll, I'll leave that to you. I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to seem immodest. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try and put them both together. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, congratulations on the amazing success of uh, Outlaws. I mean, it's absolutely massive at the moment. I mean, how does it feel to be uh, toast to the town again? <laughs> uh, no, it's lovely. I, I've um, I don't know. I never know kind of how much Twitter is a barometer of anything, but I've never had a, a sort of response on social media like I have for this, which mm. has been really thrilling. And uh, even you know a cabbie today sort of mentioning how much he was enjoying it, which is nice. So um, so I hope that's uh, that's sort of reflective of of something. Or I don't know because you know social media things can be quite a sort of mean spirited place. So mm. I've received a lot of praise, which I've been very very touching. But and I love the fact people just take time to write, which which is very nice of them. And people like you guys, you know, you know, talking about, maybe you'll talk about it, you know, in 20 years time or whatever, um, on a podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I was going to yeah, say, so it must have been, if, I, I can imagine if social media had been around when, you know, well, Twitter had been around when you guys were writing 
office and extras well i meant number one it probably would have taken longer to write uh and number two yeah do you think you might have found yourself reflecting the um the opinions on twitter or like kind of looking at what fans were saying about it it's a good question though i don't know i mean i know that i've often felt that if we were starting now we would probably have done put our sort of original demo version that we made sort of on on youtube or something like i can imagine us you know what i mean sort of coming to to even if it ended up on the bbc sort of going that route you know via sort of homemade a homemade version of the show or something um in terms of sort of yeah following the kind of reaction and whims on social media i i don't know about that i know that i think the american version was sort of aware of the fan feedback. I mean, obviously they've got a lot more seasons and a lot more episodes. So they, I think, kept one eye on it, at least to see what the sort of mood was about particular storylines. But I think think for us, because we were sort of, you know, we would sort of go away and kind of squirrel away on the scripts for half a year or something and then make it, you know, I I don't think we'd have been as reactive. Mm. Um, Whereas I think if it's like an ongoing show, it's easier to sort of, react to to what's being said i mean it's nice that you guys were able to just kind of well i mean every show was able to back then but office is such a perfect or alex is such perfect examples of just creators just making their thing exactly how they want it and just putting it out there and you know the fans either had to accept it or they didn't and obviously they have accepted it but yeah i had to do you think that will affect do you think that kind of might be the same with when you when if you do a second series of outlaws which it seems like it's it's set up for well, I, funny enough, we've actually already filmed the second series of Outlaws. Oh, okay, there you go. Then. <laughs> um, so, Get it out there before uh, there's any reaction, yeah. Well, I, it was just because what happened was we started filming it last year in February time, and then, you know, like so many other productions, it, 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 it had to shut down because of COVID. Yeah. And while we were in lockdown, I was not one of those people that thought, oh, this will all be over in a few weeks. Like, my suspicion was this is going to take a while. So yeah. I said to the BBC, look, can I write a second series while we're twiddling our thumbs? And after something in hiring, they said yes. And so, um, so we uh, convened a sort of Zoom writers room, and I and I wrote the second series with my team. And when we came back to finally resume filming this year, we did two right back to back. So we just did the first six episodes, and then like a brief hiatus, and then we did the next six. Um, which means that yeah, again, we we didn't sort of have to. Um, navigate the reaction, which I think you're right, would, would sort of probably skew your thoughts one way or the other. And instead we sort of were able to stay in a little bit of a bubble, which is which has been quite satisfying, I think. Um, and uh, it sort of allowed us to think ahead and project ahead about where we wanted the stories to go and kind of rework the first series, you know, in order to, um, to sort of plant seeds, which we could pay off in the second series, which again, thinking back to things like like the office obviously we we you know we did we'd never i don't remember us ever thinking what will we do if we get to a second series yeah we're suddenly confronted with the success of the first and then sort of oh okay now we have to bring these characters back and sort of how do, what do we do with them now um although with extras i remember we always talked about the first series in a way being a precursor to making andy millman famous in the second series that was sort of the plan you know yeah. it was like we sort of had to do the first to, to get him successful for the second so i know that was always part of the plan but um yeah. So, anyways, the Outlaws is um, is done and dusted. Second series. So, if you don't like it, nothing I can do about it. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things we've we've talked about a lot in, in uh, discussions about the Office and extras is the sort of noticeable gear shift, though. When when you do jump to that second series, you know, with the Office, you've got this this new antagonist with Neil, who sort of brings out new new shades of David as soon as he starts turning the screw on him. And then with with extras, you, you know, Andy's thrust into this life that he's totally unprepared for. Even in series one, he's unprepared for some of the harsher critics that he gets. So, you know, it's all just kind of 
comes tumbling down in that second series. So, you know, we've really grown to love you guys' second round of work. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how Outlaws uh, comes out. Is there oh, well, thank you. Yes. Well, I think it's interesting. Like you say, I think what, you know, um, there used to be that tradition with sitcoms that you didn't want to sort of alter the main dynamic very much because the pleasure in a way was sort of the, the mm. familiarity of the show and, and the familiarity of the characters. And so you didn't want to sort of, you almost had to kind of reset back to the beginning at the end of each episode. And so that, you know, <clears throat> you, you know, a lot of classic sitcoms, you can almost watch in any order, you know, there was sort of no real development, but I know that for us, it was sort of a little bit more about thinking of it like a sitcom, uh, sorry, a soap opera, a sort of soap opera with laughs. And so I think with both of those shows, it's sort of injecting the second series with some new, with some new sort of um, new energy that sort of is going to prod the characters in, in a different way, right? You know, so like you say, Neil comes in in the office and then, you know, there's a sort of, you know, uh, Tim's getting nowhere with Dawn. So sort of a new girl shows up that sort of he, he draws his eye and, and it sort of shifts the dynamic. And now sort of Dawn is pining for Tim and he's kind of distracted elsewhere. So just ways of sort of, you know, sort of lighting fires under the characters in small ways. And similarly, like you say, with, with extras kind of making him famous and now he's sort of on the other side of the, of the of the of the um, fence, as it were, you know, from sort of the nobody to the to the star and having to navigate that. So, yeah, as you say, just and, and similarly with, with with the outlaws, we've sort of we've sort of tried to bring some new some new sort of tensions and 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 sort of turn the screw on the characters in the second series. And that's there's a lot of fun in that. And I noticed as well, you managed to get a couple of COVID references in, which is something you see very little of on TV, actually. Mm. So I, I take it that must have been written after you were planning to film it. Well, it was a lot of discussion about do we set the show in a sort of COVID universe, right? Because as you say, when it was first written, it, it didn't exist. Uh, COVID, didn't, we weren't aware of it. And, and certainly the show didn't exist in, in a COVID world. And, and then I think the, because the, the show was sort of always trying to at least have one foot in reality, it, it felt weird not to mention it. And so then there was sort of lots of discussion because obviously you're making it so long in advance of when it's screened. It was like, well, is is COVID still going to be with us? Is it going to be in the past? Is everyone going to still be wearing masks? Like, so you have to, so we sort of made a decision that it's kind of existing in a universe in which COVID has happened mm. in recent memory, but they're not all wearing masks and obeying social distancing and things. Um, but yes, I mean, I mean, lots of things, because we got shut down, lots of things happened while we were locked down that sort of we had to adjust in mm. the script. Um, we had a conversation about the... Uh, statue of Edward Colston in Bristol City Centre being torn down and in the original script they discussed it but it was still standing and then obviously during the lockdown it, it got torn down during the sort of protests and um, so we had to sort of rework the script to, to, to acknowledge that. Um, so yeah it was a kind of tricky tricky trying to figure out where, it, when does this show take place? Yeah yeah. One thing I really appreciated about uh, Outlaws is a very Bristol-centric show. Mm. I think it really captures the spirit of the city. And was that something you consciously kind of made a decision to kind of write about your hometown and, and really the spirit of the city? Well, I think that there's something about being specific that actually makes things feel a bit more universal. And it seems counterintuitive, but I think part of the success of The Office was that it it was very specific, you know, it was, it was, it was Slough, neither Ricky or I sort of lived in Slough, but you know what I mean, it was sort of, it was somewhere on the journey from Bristol to London, and, and it was sort of, and, 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 and we, 
drove, I remember we drove around, when we were writing, we drove around Slough with Jimmy Carr. Jimmy Carr, yeah, he always does. And, um, and, and, we showed, and he showed us places and we talked about it. And obviously the opening credits are, are all filmed in Slough. And, and I think we liked the idea of, of it feeling specific to a, to a time and place rather than just a sort of nebulous office in which it's never mentioned where they are. And, and I think weirdly that is one of the elements that sort of makes it full universal because even if you don't know Slough and you've never been there, I think you get a sense from the way it's talked about that sort of the sort of town it is, you know. Yeah, and, right, right, and yeah. these, these big kind of dual carriageways and roundabouts. And, yeah, oh, yeah. Really got a the way it's pronounced almost. It's not yeah. there anymore. There's a traffic light junction now. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so similarly with Bristol, you know, I knew Bristol well, obviously having grown up there. And so again, I, I liked the idea of being specific with Bristol, sort of knowing kind of where each of the characters would live and the accents obviously being significant, but sort of feeling like I knew the DNA of the city and that could, we could try and make the city a feature mm. of the show because the city obviously is very um, visual, you know, it's full of graffiti, Banksy obviously the, the sort of king of that, but um, there's houses that are painted vibrant colors and it's on the, it's not very hilly. So you get nice kind of stretches and perspectives and things. And it has the kind of leafy Clifton and it has a sort of inner city bit. So it's a very visual city and it doesn't play itself very often on TV. And then it's often doubling yeah. as other places. Inserting Christopher Walken into the middle of that was, it was a wonderful, in an almost surreal way, seeing Christopher Walken kind of sitting on a bus going home from community service, yes. going through Bristol. Just kind That's of gave this whole thing a kind of offbeat mm. flavour that I really enjoyed, actually. Really enjoyed that. Well, element. we liked, one of the ideas was, you know, I know sometimes it feels like you should wheel in an American star with one eye on an American audience, but actually, in all, in all seriousness, even from the early days of it, the idea was that character was, was American and that, um, he should feel like a sort of man who fell to earth, kind of landed in that place. And he, and it does feel a bit odd, like, why is he here? And he sort of, and he seems kind of exotic and glamorous. And then you sort of realize he's just a sort of small and petty and, you know, and kind of, you know, average, if you like, as anybody else. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm, but like you say, there's something, there's nice, something nicely incongruous about seeing walking on the, the, on the thing the, I really like. So yeah. The thing I was really enjoyed was how I wasn't expecting it. I, I wasn't expecting a thriller. You know, I was expecting a comedy, a sitcom even. And, and after episode one, I was just, it blew my mind a little bit that we've got this sort of action stuff going on. And I kind of, I also thought you were going to be like the centerpiece and it'd be a bit more of a character led, um, you know, piece. But to have yourself as there is just sort of one of the ensemble cast, which I mean is, is incredible. The cast is just absolutely superb. Um, it, actually, one of the questions I was going to ask is, Actually, you might be able to settle an argument between Danny and me because in episode <laughs> five, there's a moment where I think it's uh, Rani and, Dia and Diane are having a conversation and, and a janitor walks in. Now, yes, it seems like an unknown janitor, but he's called Ronnie. And there was a certain That's Ronnie true. janitor in the office. <laughs> yes. Is, is that deliberate or is that, am I just digging way too deeper? <laughs> I'm trying to think if that, if. <laughs> I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to obfuscate. I, I, I think probably the janitor idea occurred to us and then I probably gave him the name Ronnie perhaps, okay. as a little nod afterwards. I, but I, it's amazing how it wasn't very long ago and I already can't remember the sort of <laughs> genesis of that. Um, that. That idea came from, I had a script I'd written ages ago in which a guy is trying to declare his love to a woman in, um, and she works in a hair salon and she and, and he sort of takes her aside into the kind of store cupboard and he's trying to declare his love and he's got this kind of romantic overtures. But women from the hair salon keep coming in to get 
hair supplies <laughs> during this and he has to keep stopping and kind of resuming it and so that was I think that's where that idea came from the idea of sort of yeah you're trying to in conduct an interrogation and someone's ruining it for you okay so, so have you finished in there that's why, so that's, that, that wasn't Mr Merchant Senior then right in that scene but it's funny isn't it like now you say it there's quite a few because we also have the in the office, there's that cleaning lady that comes yeah, in while yeah, Brent's yeah. giving his motivational speech. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, <laughs> just people with like pomposity being, yeah. like, are being undercut. Well, like, that's it. That's exactly that's exactly it. You, yeah, yes, yeah. you've hit the nail on the head. That's it. Yeah. Were you having a wink? I was trying to have a quick one. Yes, but it's like bloody Piccadilly Circus in here. But so going back to the office and obviously kind of the, well, what is kind of the um, kind of the mainstream start of your career. One thing we've spoken about on this show is how the office was kind of like our generation's Monty Python for like people that are like us who are in our 30s. It was kind of a similar thing. Like, you know, I remember when going to university and and um, the way I met people was kind of we would quote the office and we would kind of back office quotes back and forth. And that's how we kind of knew that, you know, you know you know, you're, you're right, you're, you're someone I'd kind of like to joke with and hang out with. And I guess from that kind of office um, kind of group that, that came up with The Office, you were kind of like the, if we're relating it to Monty Python, you were kind of like a, a Terry Gilliam-esque figure, kind of like the um, behind the scenes uh, person that kind of only the kind of the diehards kind of knew and you were kind of like this kind of kind of unseen kind of cult figure. And then obviously since then, you've kind of, as beginning with extras, you've appeared on camera and you've kind of become this kind of like big figure that kind of, it's not just the diehards that know. Were you planning yeah. from from you know well, from when you were doing XFM even before you were you did the office? Were you always planning on at some point stepping in front of a camera and kind of, or would you have been happy to to remain behind the scenes? Well, to use the Monty Python analogy, I always my hero was John Cleese. Okay, and I was a big Cleese fan, and and um, and he comes from Western Supermare, which is not far from Bristol, and had gone to college in Bristol, and he was very tall, obviously, and he used his physicality and his humor and. Um, he was a writer, but also a performer. And so uh, he was the sort of person when I was at school that I was sort of very much modeling myself on. And so, yes, my intention was that I would, that I would perform at some point. Um, and that was always the sort of long-term plan. And like Cleese, you know, Cleese uh, also wrote scripts for shows and programs that he wasn't in and then sort of transitioned into performing. Um, and uh, so I was trying to follow his footsteps. In fact, I even was following his footsteps in the effort, in an effort to try to get to Cambridge University. But um, frustratingly, my teachers didn't have great faith in me. And so in my predicted grades were not good enough. So they said, don't apply for Cambridge, you won't get in. And then I got three A's and I probably could have got into Cambridge. So I was very frustrated by that. But, um, you know, so as one of my great regrets. But um, anyway, so I, um, it did still, still panned out okay. But um, so yes, the plan was always to perform. But I think with the office, I think what happened was it, although my sort of long-term goal was to sort of do sitcoms and be a performer and a writer, meeting Ricky kind of fast-tracked us a little bit. And so once we were suddenly finding ourselves writing the show and directing the show and everything, um, the sort of thought of, oh, I must put myself in front of the camera, it didn't really occur to me because it was kind of like there was more than enough to do. You know, it was sort of, we were on a bit of a kind of, it was a bit of a sort of whirlwind really and so or I mean certainly probably at the time didn't feel that but now looking back it was and so yes yeah, so I didn't I wasn't sat there thinking damn when I can get in front of the camera because there was just always so much else to be getting on with you know um so but yes but the plan was always at some point to to emerge you know into so during, during 
during the office was there no was, was never any thought in no question at all that you would ever play you know Tim or Gareth or or even Ricky no 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 and I think perhaps I mean perhaps perhaps you know in retrospect I I, I suppose I could have it, I, I suppose it seems obvious that I could have perhaps thought about doing Gareth but I, I it just never occurred to me it's weird isn't it thinking about it now <laughs> yeah. no it never I mean, Mackenzie sort of modelled the character's voice on mine to some degree. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, like I say, I think it was just, it, you know, it, 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 it was because it sort of generated from that training, that trainee film that we made, mm. that I made, that I suppose I already felt like I was sort of behind the scenes, you know, and kind of keeping the train on the track. So I don't know that probably sort of putting us, putting both of us in front of the camera as well might have seemed you know, an ambition too far at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's such a huge milestone as well. We were talking about it um, a little while ago, you know, 20 years ago now, obviously it's the Office um, anniversary, but when the Office came out, that was the same anniversary we were looking at for 40 Towers, you know, so to think of it like that, you know, this, 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 the time just, it, it just, it goes away. And, and obviously 40 Towers is still as current now as it, as it was 20 years ago. So I like to think that in sort of another 20 years, 40 years after its release, the Office will still be just as powerful as it is today. I mean, when you were making it, did you have any idea just quite the impact that it was going to have? when it came out? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, I think um, we, and I, I, I feel like our ambition was, I remember we were feeling like we wanted it to sort of be, you know, a million people's favorite show. You know, that would have been a, that would have been a success, you know, um, that, that sort of it, it they would just that we would do this thing and that sort of, as you said about, you know, college friends that sort of like-minded people would enjoy it. And that it probably wouldn't sort of go much beyond that, that it would be a sort of cult thing, but that, that, that the diehards would love it. That was, that was the hope, I think. Um, yeah. And yes, and then obviously it sort of began to gather momentum uh, way beyond that. But uh, no, certainly there was no, no thought that it, would, that, that it would sort of get the audience it did or, or have the impact it did, or indeed the life that it's had. Mm. Um, although, you know, I, like I said, I was a Cleese fan. So, I mean, the idea of trying to, write something that might be talked about in the same conversations as Faulty Towers was certainly in the back of my mind, but um, you don't expect that to be the case. You, you're aware that that's a bit of a lofty dream. Thinking of its ongoing um, kind of legacy and how that stayed alive, are you, how aware are you of the kind of the online presence around the office and extras? There's so many quoting groups and so, and of mm. course there's our podcast, there's several other podcasts too. And, and you know, there's, there's a whole new generation, I think, coming through, yeah. being introduced to it via the medium of quotes kind of inserted into day-to-day -day life situations. Yeah. Right. Brent Crow quotes, you know, memes. memes yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Well, they don't do it in the playground anymore, in the schoolyard, in the uni cafe. They do it online. They're not doing it in their hundreds. They're doing it in millions, you know? Yeah. Well, the most extraordinary one was when I met the guys who did Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda and his <laughs> gang of collaborators, and they're all massive diehard fans. I mean, Office... UK fans Excellent. and were sort of quoting it and they made a sort of behind the scenes video sort of backstage which has got them quoting office lines and um I've never even and, seen uh, that yeah yeah I don't, I don't know if it's online but I, I've definitely seen that somewhere but them and them asking me questions about it talking about it and and that and I don't know if that means they're slightly younger than me they perhaps are but yeah they were <laughs> that was a sort of you know because the idea of something like Hamilton which was itself a sort of phenomenon well yeah yeah the idea that, that you've sort of had any kind of impact on something as majestic as that is is amazing but no I'm sort I mean I'm sort of aware that that it's sort of in the 
common conversation, I suppose. But I think, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm sort of aware of it, but I don't, I don't, because I don't seek it out. Um, like, and I think, yeah, ironically, stay, because stay, of my, stay way yeah. away from it. I would suggest. Yeah. Well, also, I think, I think, because, like you say, because my generation, my friends from university and so on, they, they obviously didn't exist. So, so within my social group, we don't. It isn't a reference point because, because it's sort of you know, it's sort of you know what I mean. Like my my reference point, it probably is still things like, you know, with my college, my university and college friends, it's it's things like. Um, Fry and Laurie or, yeah. or Chris Morris, Alan Partridge, it's things like that probably, which yeah. are the sort of reference points. It's funny more you than, um, Partridge. Yeah. I think when we spoke to uh, Ricky a little while ago, he said that he remembers you guys having a conversation where he's, I think the conversation was something along the lines of, I hope we get some of the fans that like Partridge, you know, that kind of cult character led sort of uh, really, really loyal fan base that can just sort of turn these quotes to any parts of, mm. of, of conversation. Mm. Yes, and I do remember there us having a slight anxiety that people would think we'd sort of ripped off Partridge because there obviously are similarities between Brent mm. and Partridge I mean it wasn't it, that was never a sort of a discussion in the writing process you know what I mean it was more just sort of afterwards you're like oh hang on a minute I wonder if mm. but actually I think <clears throat> looking at it now it actually Brent kind of fits into a tradition of sort of British sitcom characters mm. right back to Tony Hancock and Basil Fawlty and Partridge. And so I think it's he's more, and Captain Mannering, there's more like a, line, a lineage, I think, that he slots into rather than, you know, than sort of stealing from anyone in particular. I think the similarities come around that kind of social awkwardness, but Brent has so much more heart than Partridge. I mm -hmm. find them, although there is and some Barty. moments. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There, although there are some moments of similar kind of cringy, cringe-inducing scenarios, it's just, Brent is a character, he's, he's got more layers than Partridge, I think. Mm. The key difference is he wants to be loved, whereas Partridge doesn't really care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Partridge, I mean, I think it's, I think, the, I think some of the stuff they've been doing recently with him is some of the best stuff they've done. With that yeah, they've given him a bit of a heart it's now. Really, yeah. It's really enjoyable. Those, like, those specials, the, the Scepter Dial or whatever it was called, I just thought some of the writing yeah. in that is brilliant, yeah. Listen and I love the fact that that character kind of, you know, it's sort of evergreen in the sense that he can kind of he can kind of fit into whatever time zone he's he's in. You know that he like the way he's reacting to sort of current situations is is a is a perfect sort of reflection of a certain of a certain man at this moment in well, time. Well, we've we've spoken on the podcast about when when we were talk when we used to do the office episodes rather than extras, we would talk about how what you could do with Brent nowadays with you know social media, especially with social media and with Twitter and with uh you know um with instagram and the thing is yeah, yeah right the trouble is with brent he's, he's too self-aware for social media it's almost like he'd get a mirror in his phone do you know what i mean i think it's, <laughs> it's a little bit too on the nose whereas partridge just seems to be able to traverse these these new generations of, of media and, and he does it with such sort of pizzazz uh, whereas <laughs> well, I think I what's clever is because he because he's um a tv broadcaster isn't he right so, yeah. so they can always slot him into sort of you know, they, they, the TV's evolving and he's not. And so yeah, it's sort yeah, of, yeah, yeah. when you see him presenting a sort of one show style thing where there is a sort yeah. of, in theory, a Twitterverse out there, his reaction to that is a delight. But um, but I mean, people have asked, obviously, what you know, would The Office happen now? And and um, there are quotes in which I've s supposedly said, absolutely, but it, I haven't said that. I've just <laughs> said, I think, I think people, the BBC might be more, more, uh, hesitant about some of the elements in mm. it but I think 
I think actually, if you look at it, it seems to be addressing a lot of the of the, the sort of points that people are bringing up now. Right? I mean, it was still about reflecting political correctness, which was the sort of buzzword at the time, and yep. and kind of a person who is trying to seem right on and doesn't really understand it, and which feels like so much of what what is going on now. You know, the sort of conversations about what can and can't be said, and 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 you know, and how people. Uh, behave around other people and all those so i, I don't know i i feel like it's a lot of the same themes so perhaps it would be as as sort of uh not necessarily as relevant but you know as as kind of um well i suppose that is true yeah relevant as it, as well it, even relevant. the idea of like back in 2001 where you know there was the kind of it was the peak of reality well not maybe not the peak but it, like the reality tv boom had just started which is kind of and one thing that the office was reflecting you know the driving school airport and it seemed like it was the peak of people getting their 15 minutes of fame and and, right. and, and, and and people being desperate to be famous and they would do anything. But obviously 20 years later, that's still relevant, you know, as we said, with, you know, yeah. and when you touch on it in Outlaws with- um, Gabby. With Good Lady Gabby, yeah, exactly. Right, right, yes, exactly. And, and that's it, is it the, the, the variations of the, the technology in which you can become a celebrity have changed perhaps, yeah. the outlets. Reality TV has given way to social media, like you say, but 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 the desire is the same. Yeah, the, the need for attention and validation and the love of a million people that don't even know your name, mm. you know, or sorry, you don't even know the name of, uh, seems just as true now as it was, yeah, twenty years ago. Staying with the office, one of the things we did um, to celebrate the twenty-year anniversary earlier this summer was to we did a a special countdown show of the listeners' um, favorite moments. Uh, I was wondering, do you have a particular favorite moment from the show? From the office. From the office, yeah, yeah, not from our show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as far as your show go- goes, this is a this is a real highlight. For me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think my well, I think my favorite my favorite stuff is still the um, is still uh, Tim taking his microphone off, yeah, and going and and sort of discussing and and, and declaring his feelings to Dawn, kind of in in total silence. That was um, that was one of those ideas that one of those sort of eureka moment ideas. Where I what I love about it, what what I'm proud of about it is that it's sort of what's the word I'm looking for without sounding too pretentious. It's like form meets content or something, right? Like the the the, the mechanics of a documentary yes. allow us to do that in a way that no other fiction could, right? Any other traditional sitcom, you just wouldn't have. There's no reason for that, but. But with a fake documentary, he can literally unclip his microphone and it can go to total silence. And I think being able to use the format in a way that was so sort of, I think, dramatically satisfying, kind of emotionally satisfying, and that that I'm very proud of. And I know there was some talk from sort of executives that it wouldn't work and that shoot an alternative. And we were very kind of defiant that we weren't going to shoot an alternative, that that was what we were going to do, you know, because we sort of had faith in it. And, and that, and I remember even at the time, sort of it, being a bit goosebumpy, you yeah. know, sort of feeling even as we were filming it that, that oh, this is good, this is going to work. Well. You know, I mean, it works perfectly. And it kind of, it's yeah, like you said, it's the perfect marriage of kind of of a form and idea, and it kind of completely justifies the use of using the mockumentary form. I was going to say because that's the thing, isn't it? A lot of other mockumentaries they do kind of work these 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 touches in, but they never build them into these huge set pieces that are quite so pivotal in the plot. That is possibly the biggest moment for Dawn and Tim, and yet it does manage, as you say, to merge those two dimensions so well so yeah I, I, yeah i'd agree that's an excellent excellent moment. well i think also you know one of the reasons that um 
I think the, the, the sort of romantic story is is effective in that, which I don't I don't know if we knew we realized entirely when we started, but it became more clear to us as we went on was that um, the documentary style gives a charge to everything they do. So I remember when we first started, we we would write these kind of flirty conversations between Tim and Dawn. And we tried them, but they just felt a bit written and a bit kind of rom-commy and not sort mm -hmm. of, didn't feel natural enough. And, and actually what we realized was if we just let Martin and Lucy kind of talk, and sort of improvise conversations, but the very fact that this sort of spying camera is watching it, gives it a sort of gives it weight like why would the documentary team include it if it wasn't sort of relevant right so yeah. it sort of it takes on this kind of fizz and because they are aware of the camera or not sometimes they are sometimes they're not it sort of makes they can express their feelings for one another like they would in a in a regular show where they can just sort of say anything so so because you're constantly sort of spying on these moments these stolen moments it feels more like a sort of victorian drama right where like everyone's yeah. repressed and they can't share their true desires because of the conventions of the time like somehow it's sort of it's all sort of bottled up you know and and i think that therefore the audience is doing a lot of the work so we don't we stopped writing kind of cute dialogue because if they're just having a conversation that seems flirty mm. just because they're sort of in a private corner you know and he's uh, she's playing with his hair or vice versa um so uh yeah so it ended again to the form sort of i think made that, that rom-com story feel fresher in some way. Always gets me like this. We've, we, we'd love to do in the, the office. There was so much to talk about. There was so much to, to dive into. Um, we've moved on to series two of Extras now. That's what we're currently kind of, um, we're currently recording. And you were talking a bit earlier about that kind of injection of pace into the second series as, of some of the things you've done. One thing we loved about the second series of Extras as we were kind of watching it back was the, the beefing up of the Darren Lamb character, who's pound for pound probably one of the funniest things about Extras, especially his, his interactions with, with Barry and Sean Williamson. Who, yes. um, oh. We interviewed Sean a while back and he said that when, when, you, um, when you were put, uh, acting with him, he kind of, he felt, it felt like he, he, to him you'd done it a million times before. So, but that was your first real kind of big acting role, I guess. That was the first time you really had a, a, a big, a big part to play. Yes. What was that kind of what yes. was that like? Were you, were, you, were you nervous about that? Were you, did you feel a sense of pressure to be kind of in the in the middle of it all like that? I I don't think I felt nervous as such. I, I think, like I said, I'd always sort of. I'd always done performing and I was doing a lot of stand-up and things at the time. And so I was very used to being in front of an audience or, or performing in one way or another. And we had done, obviously, Ricky and I, a lot of radio stuff together. And, and I felt very comfortable with Ricky and, and, and so much of the script writing was sort of improvising or, you know, playing around in that way. Um, and similarly in the writing of extras. And I think I probably just sort of had a, I think I was probably not quite as relaxed as I am now as a performer on screen. But at the same time, I had a confidence that I could be funny. Mm. I wasn't doubtful that I could, that I knew how to be funny. That that was, I sort of had that arrogance. So, um, but also I think with Sean, I, what I love about him and what I loved about doing him with him is that he, he just completely gave over to that dynamic. Like he completely accepted that he was playing a character 
offshore the sort of you know the kind of lonely sad live in his car kind of character and he just and he just understood the sort of classic sort of double act quality of that you know the Lauren Hardy of it or the or whatever it is and and just so was not was not was not precious was not self-conscious you know and just embraced it and I think because of that you know that gave me more freedom and so you know the, the silliness of you know a lovely bit of muffin or whatever it is <laughs> you know, um that sort of or, or you know him singing Mustang Sally like it just whatever kind of rapport we had in that first series we knew we could just magnify in the second because we, he and I had a good rapport and we knew he was game for a laugh and he knew he was up for anything and if we wanted to have him wanking over a pen, <laughs> for it, you know so um those are the those are the joys of doing a second series <laughs> after you've already established something in the first it's because you sort of know the bits that work you know you know what what to what to elevate and and did you write it with um sean williamson in mind was it written for barry from eastenders or was it kind of written in mind with someone a bit more could it have been dean gaffney for example or, so, or someone else it's a good question again i i i don't remember it's sort of chicken and egg but i feel like i can't remember but i feel like we probably spoke with most of those famous faces we spoke to them once we had the idea for for one of them, we had we we tried to get them on board before we bothered writing it. Yeah, you know, we didn't want to kind of go down a down a road and just hope that they would say yes. So, I suspect with Sean, we sort of probably had the idea of him. He must have been around at the time yeah. in people's thoughts, and sort of, and then approached him about it, and he was up for it. And then we kind of were off to the races. I suspect with how it happened, I can't remember exactly, but yes, we very rarely, you know, just wrote a whole sketch for Kate Winslet and then hoped that she'd say yes. On the subject of getting big names on your on the show, I mean, we, we, you know, we've got people like yourself joining us. We, I, we can only imagine this is what it must have felt like for you guys to get, you know, the likes of Samuel L. Jackson and Patrick Stewart and McKellen and the stuff on your show. I mean, do you remember if there were any any big stars that kind of said no or, or that you, you struggled to get or, or that maybe regretted it after they saw the show come out? I didn't get any sense of any regret. Um, I think what, one of the reasons we did that show and one of the reasons we wanted to make Andy famous was that obviously, you know, that that had happened to Ricky and to some degree me in the interim. Right. And, you know, and, and I think we just, it, we felt like it was so comically absurd. There was so much to talk about. And it, it seems probably more, it feels like it's been done a lot more now than it did at the time. It had been done with Larry Sanders and, a few other things, but it wasn't the idea of the sort of celebrities playing themselves uh, wasn't quite as ubiquitous as it is now. I mean, it feels like every show does that, but that wasn't quite as common then. And um, uh, another, although Kirby Enthusiasm, I think, was bubbling around, I don't know if we had seen it. I can't remember if we'd seen it at the time. Um, but uh, so I don't remember. I, I think I remember we. I think we asked Madonna. But she was on tour, so she couldn't do it. But she talk, we talked with her. I'm sure we contacted, we talked to her. But she, she was there was some back and forth with her, I think. And um, we, who else did we speak to? We spoke to Sid Little, and he wasn't up for it. Slightly <laughs> declined. And then Keith Harris and Orville. I think Keith Harris was a bit appalled. At the I was going to say they, 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 <laughs> we, we spoke about we spoke about the Keith Harris thing on the podcast. That's quite a famous. Uh, we only know story. about really. I mean, I've seen him on the Louis Theroux documentary, and he did seem a little bit sort of uh, nervous about making fun of his image on that. I suppose that might have been part of it. Was he Les Dennis? Basically. I don't remember. I don't remember. 
him being I don't I just think I felt like is it am I confusing him is that right is it Keith Harris who subsequently said he read the script or something and he was appalled I feel like it was yeah, I've, I've, but, someone yeah, we asked was upset we've definitely spoken about Keith Harris so we're either all <laughs> putting this story onto him because I yeah we, we'd heard about it yes. and we spoke about it yeah I'm beginning to feel like I don't want to sort of disparage him if it wasn't I remember there was someone who who just sort of politely declined and then subsequently said yeah, yeah behind yeah. Our, not behind our backs but to a journalist or something that they were they were appalled but otherwise um no everyone I think generally what happened was that Ricky was sort of having you know a moment and being on talk shows and things and, and sort of meeting people and so he it was sort of like the moment to try and grasp yeah. the opportunity yeah. so you know whether he's on a talk show with Sam Jackson or ran into Kate Winslet somewhere it was just do you want to do this show? There wasn't much distance really between the office and extras either, right? You guys basically, you know, you did the office, you got your Christmas special out, got all the awards, Just and then much tea, before like, you know yeah. it, bang, you're in straight into extras. So I mean, it was it was uh, you clearly, you know, capitalised on that cachet, like you say. Well, I remember the, the original idea was we the the joke was going to be that the, that the that the superstars would be in it, but they would literally be extras. So oh, okay. you know, we'd be we'd be doing scenes in the foreground, and Kate Winslet would literally walk by, but would say nothing and do nothing. <laughs> and that was the sort of initial joke. And then we sort of realised that seems a bit silly. Like she's going to come all the way to Pinewood and then not say anything. You know, that seemed like a missed opportunity, and it felt like a sort of joke that was not, you know, that wouldn't wouldn't last very long. Yeah, no, it might, might not have lasted 12 episodes, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. So then um, it obviously expanded into them being themselves. But it was also just because, you know, if The Office in some way was about um, ordinary people wanting to be famous, I guess the extras kind of continued that theme. And then it was sort of, well, what, what does it do to people when they are famous, you know? And, yeah. And, and what does, how does celebrity kind of twist friendships and your own con your own brain and so on. It's a mask that eats into the face. <laughs> a mask that eats into the face. <laughs> Be careful, mate. <laughs> um, obviously, there's on the on the DVDs. There's that um, extra feature where you guys are trying to you spend a night in your hotel and trying to hunt down Leonardo oh, DiCaprio, yeah, like on, on on the phone yeah. with his agent. Was there any other kind of weird or um, that doesn't sound like that's the usual way you guys went around trying to get these celebrities onto the show? Was there any other kind of unusual or kind of bizarre ways you guys tried to like get a, get a celebrity to be on the show? Well, well, Ricky, I don't know if Ricky spoke to you about this when he, when he was on your show, but um, he he did a movie called Stardust, yeah, uh, which was a sort of sci-fi fantasy thing, chiefly to get close to Robert De Niro, who was also <laughs> that was the reason he did it. <laughs> yes. Yes, and so he kept on trying to sort of turn the conversation around to it on set, and <laughs> and, and, and then they, they suddenly they call action, and he, you know, Robert, would you action? Oh, damn <laughs> so, but obviously that worked because I remember we, yeah, he, I mean, he suddenly got a phone call one day from, and it's like, hello, Robert De Niro, what, you know? Yeah. Well, I remember. I remember even watching that episode. I mean, a, a, as great as Extras was, as much as I loved it, and as much respect I had for you guys, when you guys were teasing De Niro being on it, and I was like, there's no way they've got De Niro. There's absolutely <laughs> no way they've got De Niro. And, and of course, you're the only one that had the scene with him, right? With the pen. Well, I did have a scene with him. And 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 also, I, what's also unfortunate is that the sort of wide shot that shows us in the room together, because I'm so big on a regular-sized chair, 
I look, the perspectives look weird. So it looks like I've been sort of digitally dropped in. And we never were in the same room. And the, but we were in the same room. I just, it's just so, it just looks very weird. So there's sort of like conspiracy theories that I've, I've had people ask me. But no one met him. Um, but um, there was a there was a there was a bit I remember which we cut out and which didn't make it. I don't think it's on any of the bloopers where I ad libbed one time where we were sat there trying to make conversation. That's the sort of joke of the scene, right? And and my one of my sort of second or third cousins is, is Sarah from Banana Rama, okay, which is girl group. And so at one point we were just sat there and I just started singing Robert De Niro's waiting, talking Italian, because um, <laughs> he was literally waiting, right? In yeah. the um, I don't know why we didn't keep that in. I just always remember thinking, when else, when else are you, can you sing Robert De Niro's waiting? <laughs> literally got him waiting in the scene. I don't know why we didn't include it. Maybe we couldn't get clear it. Did right. you tell him about the, the, your connection with Banana Rama there? Had he heard of the song? I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember. I just always, I always wished that that had made it in. Actually, it was one of my regrets. I'd like that to have been in there. Steve, I've got a question for you. If you were making extras now, who do you think would be a really good guest star? Oh blimey! Um, Might put you on the spot a little bit, but I mean, we've we've had some thoughts. We'll maybe throw out some of our thoughts, and you can let us know what you think. So please do, yeah. Uh, I think we had Tom York. <laughs> yeah, that was my oh, idea. Yeah, yeah. 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 We had uh, yeah. Chuckle Brothers. <laughs> Obviously, we've got only Paul's uh, round now, but, but when Paul and Barry, I think, would have been quite funny. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's right. Yes, yes. Well, they, although they were around when we did. And so was Tom York. Yeah, yeah. And so was Tom York. Yeah. You should have asked us, Steve. We could have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, guys. I mean, uh, <laughs> well, I think what the, the the best the best are always people with a very distinct public persona. Yeah, you know, so so you know, so people like um, my old friend Dwayne the Rock Johnson. You know, people oh, yeah. that have a well, very oh, perfect, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then yeah, it would yeah, have been, been it could have been you, but but but, uh, but snatched him rather than Ricky, who uh, <laughs> had to do right, that. right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I suppose in a sense we we sort of you know we obviously recycled some of the same ideas with Life's Too Short, so. Uh, but I think Liam Neeson in that in that was I was on a talk yeah, show with Liam yeah, Neeson. Yeah, yeah. I said, "Would you would you be on Life's Too Short?" So um, yeah. So uh, I think anyone with a kind of strong strong image for the public is the is the good are the good ones. We've always talked about like the best extra stars are not necessarily the, the most famous stars, but the ones that are you know willing to like jump in both feet and, and usually the British ones like the Les Dennises and the Ross Kemp's. Mm. For us, they're the ones yeah. that kind of stand out as absolute blinders because they're the ones that kind of. We kind of associate with we've got yeah. far more in common with both of them than we have you know samuel L. jackson or, or you know or anyone like that you said before you know you feel a bit closer to the kind of les dennis yeah. type because yeah. you grew up with him saturday night on on you know family fortunes you feel a bit you feel a bit closer to him and it was so raw at the time what he'd been going through and yeah you know what i mean so just right. sort of throw it out there like that it was just us. well i think les is i think les was the bravest yeah yeah people we've worked with Absolutely. i mean i think that was really audacious of him and you know in naked in that literally yeah. himself off and and, um, <laughs> and then that's yeah. there's that moment where it, he's sort of i think he doesn't he end an episode where he's sort of having sex with someone i can't remember yeah yeah if it's up there if it's up there i'll give it i'll give it, I'll give it, I'll give it <laughs> but, but that was that was leslie's own ad lib that was kind of ad lib so um yeah he was really gung-ho for it it was uh was there any i've always thought it's 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 kind of amusing that that was your first kind of 
collaboration with in American television. Obviously, Extras was kind of co-produced by HBO. Was there? Did, did you get a sense that there was any kind of amusement from them when you kind of gave them the list of who was going to be on it? And you're like, right, okay, we're going to start with Ross Kemp, and you know, then we're going to go on to Les Dennis. <laughs> was there any kind well, of actually? Was it just like, you know what, do what you need to do, guys? I think we actually were trying to police ourselves slightly more than they did. We did uh, in America on HBO. Um, the uh, Ben Stiller episode is the first episode of the yes, of yeah, yeah, the first series, uh, and it's Ross Kemp in the UK, but. Um, and we made, I think, a couple of concessions here and there. We we changed a few lines, I think. Yeah. You know, in order to sort of keep one eye on it. But um, but if you go too far down that road, you just it kind of drives you insane because you can never quite know what they know and what they don't, and yeah. um, what references they get. So um, I think with Les Dennis, they we you know it was sort of the middle of the series, and I think they just sort of hopefully they just accepted it, you know. Mm. Uh, in the same way that when we watch those shows and we kind of piece together the well, exactly. of yeah, someone, yeah. you know, just, just from watching it. But, um, but uh, yeah, so there's obviously some nuance missed. Uh, <laughs> I often wondered with Les Dennis because it was so raw and real. As, it was so close to what he was, it was probably the, 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 the closest to what someone was really going through as a celebrity. Do you think there might have been a sense of catharsis in that for him? To kind of well, I think it's there? that thing. Yes, I think it's taking ownership of things, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, all of the... Uh, again, so much of it was sort of, um, you know, was it he's on Big Brother and he was kind of talking to chickens, supposedly. Or whatever. Yeah. But it, so much of that is the way that Big Brother had edited it and the kind of stills which had been recycled in the paper and trying to make him into this kind of sad sack character. Uh, and so, yeah, leaning into that and sort of infidelity and all the rest of it. Um, but I'm sure it's a way of, of yeah, of, 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 of a sort of catharsis. But again, we didn't spring that on him you know we had a conversation with him and we asked him what he was comfortable with and we you know it's, it was very much sort of um done in in collaboration with those people we you know what i mean we never we never just sort of it was not like we weren't trying to catch them out yeah so, sure. I mean, was, we've just recorded the daniel radcliffe episode uh, of our podcast and one of obviously the themes in that is around the sort of the wild west of the press at that time you know and, and people like les presume yeah. didn't have much right of reply really because there was no twitter there's no social media so right. actually kind of at the mercy of these wildcats in the press so actually you guys giving him a bit of a platform really just to say you know this is my this is this is me kind of thing so it must have been quite great well but i also think that 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 sequence that we have where uh the sort of incident is blown out of all proportion and it's kind of sort of you know and it's and it's and it's uh chewed over by different media outlets until it's become sort of warped mm. the true story sort of become warped um i feel like you know at the time like you say that was like the media that was kind of doing that but it feels like now again that would probably be more like social media wouldn't it that's yeah. yeah. a small incident is kind of inflated and and misinterpreted and uh yeah you know so, um I still find that that scene with the Rufus Jones as the as the journalist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just trying to get the story out there for you, mate. I just <laughs> think that's, like, that's like a, such a wonderfully Brilliant. perfect encapsulation of sort of that kind of that kind of um, press journalism. Yeah, and it's such um, a great performance as well. We particularly pointed yeah. out Rufus Jones when we did the episode. Yeah, that no, was it's, it's so funny. Yeah. So he was clearly based on a, a kind of some journalist or something like that. But was was Darren Lamb based on those any kind of leachy agent types that you'd experienced? Darren Lamb was more to me was like, um, what if my gran was my agent? <laughs> <laughs> even if they were kind of, even if they were sort of doing their best, they just they they're not equipped to yeah. 
to do it. And I think to us, it was always the idea that he'd had cards printed up in a in a, a motorway service station that just said sort of Darren Lamb agent. And it's, but he had no, he had no kind of concept. There was a, there was a, there was a kid I knew who I went to school with who um, I ran into after the success of The Office and I don't really know what he'd been doing. He certainly wasn't in the TV business. I remember him saying to me, um, uh, I'd like to, I'd like to get into TV and stuff. Um, do you need a producer? <laughs> it was like, wow. I mean, I was like, no, we're, we're, we're good producers right now. But I mean, yeah, in his mind, it was sort of like, yeah, I've been working down the co-op, but I'll give TV <laughs> a go if you need, if you need someone. So I think there's a, there's definitely a bit of Darren Lamb in that, you know, that, He's sort of part time at the car firm warehouse. And yeah. <laughs> Did you guys ever come up with like a backstory of how Darren and Andy met? Well, I think it's also that um, that sort of periphery of show business where there are a lot more, uh, where it's much easier, I think, to sort of just decide you're an agent or a manager. You know, like you hear about the early lives of rock bands, right? I mean, I think even Brian Epstein for the, of the Beatles was just working in a record shop, right? He was just the the adult in the area that sort of had, like knew a few music promoters that meant he was then the manager of the Beatles. And so I think it was the idea that sort of, if you're an extra or wanting to get into an extra, you into the extras world, you, you have no idea about show business. And so anyone who's even got sort of a few phone numbers in a book somewhere, it seems kind of plugged yeah. in in some way. Yeah. Um, and so I, that was always the idea to me that he, you know, that he'd been running karaoke nights and, <laughs> and sort of was, had a regular job, but was sort of trying to be in show business. And weirdly, years ago, one of the first TV things I did uh, was I did um, uh, <laughs> Sky TV had got hold of some porn outtakes, right? Like from porn right. films, yeah. oh, from porn films, badly dubbed porn. It wasn't called they'd got these porn bloopers and and um they thought they could get two episodes of TV out of it. Okay. And so uh oddly enough, Martin Freeman's cousin, who I think is called Ben Norris, is that his name? He was a comedian, good comedian. He was the host, and they needed like field reports to kind of pad out the show. Yeah. It's gonna be like sort of it's all right on the night or one of those kind of blooper shows, but with yeah. or you know, but with with um porn. And they needed to pad it out. And so they they and I had a friend who worked on it. So she said, do you want to go to Los Angeles and interview porn stars so we can pad this show out? Yeah. And so that in itself is its own story, which I don't have time for now. But anyway, I went to LA <laughs> and I met a number of sort of porn agents and they were exactly the sort of Darren Lamb outfit. You know what I mean? They, they had a, yeah, a yeah. seedy little office, yeah. you know, above like a pizzeria and, and they seemed to have several jobs and they're just people off the street were coming in responding to adverts and because they had a desk and a phone people sort of thought they were legit you know and so I feel a bit like that's Darren Lamb like he if he wasn't extras it could have been porn stars <laughs> <laughs> well he's not dissimilar to um David Brent's agent in the yeah. Christmas specials of the office is long, really? long Don Silver oh you're right no you're right I suppose he is yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so obviously one of the big narratives in, well, the big narrative in series two of Extras is that Andy's finally achieved his dream and writing and starring in his own sitcom. But as he's achieving that dream, he, he sees it kind of like crumble and like, like turn into a nightmare in front of his eyes. Was that kind of reflective at all of your own worries when you and Ricky started making The Office? I think so, a little bit, yes. I think it was that fear of, of, of how you could go wrong if you didn't keep full control of something or, or, or stick to your guns. You know, I think there was that anxiety of, 
of what of something kind of um mutating but was it was uh, yes, it we, yes. we we spoken um when we talked about when the whistle blows we speak we've, we've spoken about how we see it's almost like you guys have deliberately set when the whistle blows in a kind of parallel what it could it could have been how the office went it's almost like a parallel <laughs> i suppose so yeah but it, it, it's, it's a work it's a workplace it. comedy uh and you know and, and you've got this kind of like the, a boss from hell kind of <laughs> kind of figure but instead of being this kind of like kind of kind of quite authentic realistic mockumentary it's kind of this kind of ridiculously broad so it's like it's almost like a kind of like there but the grace of god go i kind of thing it is although i think it, in retrospect i really like when the when the i really like when it was supposed to, and in fact i think we had talked about doing a whole episode of it oh, uh, please do that. for a dvd <laughs> or something which we we never <laughs> got around to but I don't think that I am as down on it as the character, as Andy is. You know, I actually think I like some of the kind of broad jokes and the and the funny wigs and everything. I sort of I quite like all that. I think it's, it's definitely a place for it, isn't there? I mean, as, as, yeah. there's, plenty, there's plenty of shows on at the well, yeah, at the moment that are kind of similar to that. Yeah, I mean, we, well, I think probably we were. I think we were probably a little bit more. Um, what's the word? You know, like like I think when you when you start out in any kind of business, like you talk, when you talk about sort of bands that I'm just listening to a podcast about joy division and, you know, so much of, of when they first got together, it's kind of about not wanting to be others, other bands, right? Like that sort of you're, you're reacting to other stuff and you're kind of the sort of new kids on the block and you're sort of punk and rock and roll and like, yeah, and sort of tearing and like, you know, blowing up what's come before. And I think, so there was probably, we probably were sort of more kind of snooty about, comedy and sort of what comedy should be then than than we are now certainly like yeah I, I think it'd be quite fun to to do a show like that and in fact I've done things like you know Big Bang Theory and other shows like that yeah sort of broader sitcoms and I, I actually had a blast doing it like really fun mm -hmm. fun enjoyable thing to do so um yeah I'm not as down on it as Andy really. <laughs> yeah, yeah as I say you've already basically answered our next question there because I was just going to say like obviously you were walking a very tough line with when the whistle blows because on the one hand you wanted to portray it as this awful broad show but on the other hand you also wanted to make it funny for us as the viewer and for us yeah it's some of our favorite moments of series two is you know like watching the antics of Mr Stokes <laughs> and yeah we do yes. often wonder yes. are we really supposed to believe that Andy Milne is this great writer that's written an amazing sitcom <laughs> or we most think that actually he's pretty mediocre and that's actually probably not a bad representation of him. Mm. I think that's actually quite. I think that's probably that. right, isn't it? I think. That's yeah, that, that's, right. what, that's, yeah. that's what the interpretation yeah. I always lean towards. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably also, like I say, I think it's probably closer to to, to musicians' experience, right? That, that that sort of the musician wants to be a kind of credible singer songwriter, and he's turned into a pop act. Yeah, yeah. They will, you know, yeah. and then and then they sort of five years later they rebel and they go, you know. Like people who go on to, you know, X Factor and then sort of rebel against Simon Cowell down the road. And it's like, well, no, you took the deal. You know, yeah, you yeah, yeah. number one. You signed <laughs> up for this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I love it because he's desperate. Steve, one thing I was going to ask you, I couldn't let you go without having a conversation about the, the old XFM shows and the podcasts because... You know, we talked about 20 year milestone for The Office. That's basically the same for the XFM shows. It's hard to believe, but those were around before podcasts were even a thing. I mean, I, I almost sort of credit you guys with developing the genre, not the genre, the medium of podcasts, because I used to have them all downloaded as MP3s on my MP3 player and just 
listening on repeat to these shows and there's obviously a huge subculture that do that as well I mean it's it's one of those ones where I, I always want to ask you um did you ever realize just how good it was because you may used to joke about it being Tim Pot and amateur and monkey news and player record but really you know it's here to stay and it's, it's so popular well, no, I do. I, I mean, I can. I think. I, I think it's sort of I, the two things aren't mutually exclusive. I do think it was ramshackle and tin pot, and kind of, you know, and and I did get. I, I think I had pretensions to being a slightly more slick radio operation. <laughs> the Telegraph and uh, <laughs> and you know, and and Ricky sort of just sort of getting bored halfway through a sentence, <laughs> you know, just bailing on the competition rules or whatever. Um, but. But equally, at the same time, you know, I knew that, that particularly with Carl, that we'd sort of found gold dust. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I was aware that it was both sort of ramshackle and, and sort of fun. What I didn't anticipate is that it would have any kind of life beyond, really. I mean, mm. I think, to me, the, good, the fun of radio was always that it was quite sort of disposable, you know, that it sort of was, it was live and it kind of just came and went, you know, yeah. and even with the podcasts when we started doing them if i to my mind it was the same thing like that sort of you did it and it kind of and it, someone was entertained for half an hour and then it just disappeared like fish and chip wrappers you know <laughs> the idea that it would sort of that we would hang on and people would re-listen to it or or find um comfort in it you know as i sometimes hear people do you know yeah. people get quite a lot of messages about people for whom it sort of helped them with depression or mm -hmm. mental health or sort of there's a certain reassurance to hearing us and through lockdown last year particularly, i think yeah, yeah. Well, because it's, it's just yeah which is lovely but again i don't think you can anticipate that um, no. i think it's, it's because you've got this sort of dynamic between the three of you and it was such a great great sort of uh, partnership because you just sounded like a bunch of mates you know it didn't sound like you were doing a radio right. show. it sounded like somebody just sat down at the pub with their friends and and that was the magic of it and you know that's why the, you know and so many of them as well i mean there's hundreds and hundreds of hours of it i mean I, you've only got to look at your uh, social media feeds i mean it, it, every comment you seem to get in response to your posts are just people throwing random references to these shows i mean how, how does that right. to know that you're getting these these obscure things you said 20 years ago yeah i mean i i just i i mean i i don't read a lot of the social media I mean, I kind of dip into it you know because I feel sort of bad not not responding and I feel guilty that I don't reply to more people um and I see people writing random comments which I half the time I assume are from the podcast but I have no memory of them um, <laughs> but, the, but I don't I just have to skim past that because otherwise yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, I haven't got time to look at it's just someone a... quoting monkey news so um <laughs> it just seems like it's just like yeah, whatever. Just, I, but I get out of the way. I'm trying to read yeah. the sensible comments about the outlaws. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't, it doesn't offend me or upset me. I just, it's just sort of, it feels like, it feels like junk mail. You know, like, <laughs> I, think that's uh, I mean, that's essentially what it is. Um, yeah. Yeah. We've got, you know, the office. We've done a podcast for the extras. We've got a podcast for. There's actually a podcast dedicated to the XFM shows. I mean, you know, it's absurd to think that the subculture is sort of permeated that deeply that you've got yeah. a podcast about a radio show. But uh, they're called the the D. But also, I think. <laughs> well, I think what's lovely is that I think what's lovely is that people, um, you know, I, I was a fan of stuff, you know, like when I was growing up, I was a real fan of the people I've mentioned. And when I was growing up and, and, it, and I was a fan of Monty Python or Forty Towers or Blackadder or these things, um, there just was less 
there was certainly it was kind of impossible to communicate with the people involved unless you uh, wrote a letter to them. And there was very little conversation around it, you know? So unless it was schoolmates talking about it, yeah. there wasn't much that you could consume. So I remember Monty Python had a couple of sort of books that tied in with the show. And then later they started publishing the scripts of Monty Python and 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 then uh, Forty Towers, and I remember getting those you know books kind of for Christmas gifts and just devouring them, just reading, pay, you know, reading the scripts and yep. just and just like because it was the only way you could somehow reappreciate, relive the show without watching it. There was no sort of other conversation really, and so like you say, meeting like-minded people <coughs> at university or whatever was the only way you could enjoy that stuff. So the fact that now there is a way of fans kind of being able to communicate and share their enjoyment of it and chat, chat about it and laugh about it is great it's brilliant I mean exactly what I, I would have been fully into that when I was if I was younger you know and, and, and that stuff would have been available I would have jumped into that stuff feet first Vic and Bob were my other big heroes of mine yeah <clears throat> we even went so far as organizing a party and we gave away some obscure signatures one of which was from your dad I, I wrote him a letter asking him for an old signed picture and he, and he was lovely he sent me back a, a picture that we we gave away as a raffle prize amazing yeah, yeah. He, lo he loves the occasional uh, like uh, someone ran into him in a car park and recognized him he was very excited by that holding <laughs> <laughs> the toilet bowl <laughs> yeah, he probably was yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, it's one of those things. You know, it's it's been so long, and obviously you you and Rick worked together. You know, what you know stopped what twenty two probably about fourteen years ago. I mean, we we we've been trying to sort of put our fingers on what made the partnership so special because we sort of think about it. You know, you know um, Ben Elton and Richard Curtis, Lennon McCartney. I mean, what, what was it you say? What would you say rather is is the magic between you and Rick? Um, what is the magic? Well, I think. Um, it feels to me like when we first started, um, I was quite I was quite ambitious and quite very hardworking and and quite disciplined, mm. and I felt like I think I had quite a good sense of the sort of of the sort of mechanics of of comedy. You know what I mean? The sort of nuts and bolts of it. Like you know, going back to that reading of scripts and things. Sort of, I felt like I had dismantled sitcoms and put them back together again like I felt like I knew the wiring and was doing stand-up and you know I had that sort of drive and Ricky um to me felt like a sort of un like a more unfettered kind of sort of just this sort of wild you know um fountain of of imagination and uh, but but sort of it was it just bounced around you know and and I felt like I sort of was able to sort of corral him a bit. And I think over time, what happened was we sort of the, the, the two things blended. So it's like he got more shape and discipline and I sort of loosened up and became less, uh, sort of not by the rules, but you know what I mean? Slightly less sort of, you know, worried about the, the mechanics and the structure and just sort of allowed, allowed more playfulness and more uh, whatever, whatever else, you know, he brought to the party. So I think it sort of became a, uh, you know, a, a very sort of mutually supporting environment then, you know, where, yeah, I, I don't know where it's just, you you know, we sort of knew how the other one was thinking and we knew how we just, we were very much in tune. So we just, you know, if an idea 
struck us we sort of we knew where to take it we could kind of both follow it upstream at, at the same pace or whatever and i think that's uh, not being a musician i suspect that's when musicians are yes are at their best right just because they're sort of jamming and they're both yeah they both know sort of they both know where to go really and it's sort of um did it feel so almost that's... effortless in, in a sense did it feel kind of effortless like you'd hit a rich creative vein between the two of you that these ideas just well it, it did but it was it was it was always it was always days of frustration and staring at the wall there was <laughs> lots more there was just as much kind of however long we worked together and however experienced we became we never there were always days where you just got frustrated that you couldn't you couldn't crack something or you just it was a bit of a dry stay and inspiration didn't strike you know and then suddenly the most random thing like I remember um I remember us being in our office <laughs> I remember us being in our office I, I'm trying to remember this I, I, I might have misremembered this slightly but my memory of it is something like we're in the office working and we might have had an office at BBC and Ricky came back from the toilet <laughs> and said something like um I should leave it five minutes or something like that as a joke, you know, or, or like, yeah, I wouldn't pop in there. I've left a little, I've left a little deposit, <laughs> something like that. And I just, and I remember me saying something like, imagine saying that on a date. And then you know, imagine going for dinner in someone's house and saying that. And then <laughs> yeah. it became, and then that became that scene oh, um, with, with sort of, you know, with us on me on that date with Maggie. So, you know, and so then it's sort of, you know, in, in the office, we're then, we're laughing about that and then it becomes a sort of riff of playing out the and then and then it's like and initially it's just a just an idea it's just a funny idea it's not it's just us amusing each other and then it's like oh hang on we could, what if we put this in the show and then then it's like well who which characters would it be and why would it have happened and you know what i mean and so an idea yeah. that just was a funny goofing around in the office suddenly you can kind of harness it and, and put it in the show and so those are the those are the really exciting moments because they're sort of they're just sort of born from nothing, you know? There's no, there's no sort of, um, you're not sat there thinking, yeah, yeah. we must do a funny story about having a shit on a date. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because, you know, as fans of the X adventure, you can, you can almost feel the, the genesis of some of these ideas bubbling away sometimes, I guess, because the ch chats are so relaxed. It's probably no different, right. than, you know, than saying I've just had a shit. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so yeah, well, some sort of- that's, that's true in, 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 all, in all the writing that I've done, with Ricky or without the, the best days are where you're not you're not talking about necessarily what you have to do that you're allowing yourself space to share anecdotes or talk about friends you knew or the journey into work or you have to be sort of open to that stuff because it's not um it's never necessarily direct it's just that someone will say something and that will fire a sort of synapse or whatever in someone else and Mm. and being open to that stuff is kind of the fun of it really um yeah so i mean after uh outlaws the second second series comes out is there any plans to sort of uh, get back in the sack with ricky <laughs> get back in the sack with ricky <laughs> i don't know i mean i, I, I give always... it a couple of minutes let him finish off first <laughs> yeah no it definitely would be fun to do something again as well that would be terrific although i think in the short term i feel like i might um i might go back to stand up or something because i i i I, the Outlaws was such an arduous uh, and very ambitious show and, and it has a lot of characters and it's whether it looks like it or not it, it's quite a lot it's quite a lot of scale to it and it's yeah. it was a sort of very difficult show to make and and particularly in covid and i think it's just the idea of going back to something like stand up where you're just sort of your own you're your own boss really and it's no 
you don't have to partner with anyone. You don't have to rely on anyone else. I think that might just be a nice sort of palate cleanser. That'd be great. Yeah. Hello, ladies was excellent. The stand up and the show. So yeah, that'd be we'll look forward Thank to you. Yeah. One thing I was going to say about the outlaws is that it's interesting to chart your progress from. So the 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 first kind of mainstream thing you did that got you know due attention from from the public was was the office, which was kind of very deliberately a kind of like very kind of like handheld mockumentary kind of low production values um uh, project and that in the outlaws it's like we, we were speaking earlier after we after we all watched it at how kind of like slick and cinematic mm. and kind of like really it's kind of got some it great it's, it's got some great touches and yeah there's kind of a bit these amazing scenes i'm thinking particularly about the scene where uh Rani goes back to her house and there's kind of like the um, the cameras following her through all the windows throughout the house outside. It's kind of very kind of like almost like John Carpenter-esque and kind of yeah. extras is almost kind of like this perfect midpoint of <laughs> kind of after the office kind of you, you, you drop in these kind of the, the, the clips from, from, from the films that Andy's being an extra on or working on. And that's kind of like almost like starting to kind of like um, work on your kind of cinematic slick directorial kind of like flourishes. Um, so oh, it's I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. It's interesting, but and then obviously now, kind of with Outlaws and kind of I hope hopefully beyond, you've you've kind of like made this kind of huge kind of um, at least this kind of visual leap from 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 the office kind of over the twenty years to to now. Well, I appreciate you saying that because that I mean I you know I did film studies at university and 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 I was always uh, had ambitions to to direct films and direct, you know, things with, like you say, some cinematic flair to them. And the fact that The Office was in that sort of documentary style, just sort of was the circumstances of its birth really, you know? And so I think I, I was always sort of keen to do that. And, um, you know, but it's just, but ultimately it becomes, it's about experience, you know, the, the, the sort of the more you do it, the, the better you become really. And, um, and I feel like, yeah, I've sort of reached uh, reached a point now with the outlaws where, with, with the sort of at the risk of sounding arrogant, I feel like for the sort of first time, I'm like, I can say to myself, I'm good at this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I sort of, I'm a professional. You know, I'm a safe <laughs> hand. I know what I'm doing. You know, and I, and you know, there's always a bit of imposter syndrome, but I've reached a point where I'm like, no, you yeah. could, you know, there's better people, but I'm, yeah, I'm solid. I'm a solid yeah. seven out of ten. You, you know, I'll get you from A to B. So, but, um, and so, uh, yeah, and so I, so I appreciate you saying that. It does feel very assured. Mm. Professionalism is. I, yeah, that's what I want. It's funny because even, even in, um, like, for instance, if I was to walk you through the the amount of references that me and the director of photography have discussed with the outlaws you know from the sequence you mentioned which is clearly you know taken from kind of john carpenter style halloween slasher movies right the kind of camera panning around the house and but there's there's references to the most sort of eccentric um weird mashup of 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 stuff so you know like there's a kind of foot chase in the final episode that's like a little bit point break and a little bit yeah. fast and furious and um and then you know and then other times there's there's like uh you know sort of french art house films you know so there's a, a real mush up of of kind of references but i i think because i don't i'm not one of those sort of uh sort of fanboy filmmakers like the tarantinos who sort of like to to show off their references in a way yeah. kind of i prefer it to sort of be a bit more hidden and kind of mush together so i think sometimes people sort of 
So even back to the office, you know, that some of the references that Ricky and I would talk about, like I remember there's a bit where, um, where Tim is looking at Dawn and the photocopier is going. And I think it maybe starts with the, you see a shot of the photocopier and then, and then Tim is looking at Dawn and, and then the sound of the photocopier kind of uh, gets slightly louder. Mm. As though it's supposed to be the sort of inner thoughts of him, like, is he going to tell her his feelings and things like that? And I mean, it's yeah. much probably much more subtle than I'm describing it. But I remember that being uh, us discussing the bit in The Godfather where Michael has to Michael has to kill um, the, yeah. the, the corrupt cop, and he goes in, and then you hear the kind of the sort of overhead train yeah. tracks kind of rattling as he's as he starts to work up to that moment. Yeah, and so you know, us very deliberately talking about that as a reference point. Now you would never make that connection, but <laughs> but it was there, you know. Um. So yeah. So with 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 the outlaws, we, we as we just said, you kind of um almost it's, it's almost a chance for you to make your kind of like a big kind of Hollywood kind of thriller action film. And for the last couple of years, I mean, you you obviously worked were in LA to make Hello Ladies, and you worked with like the the, the biggest Hollywood movie star in the world with The Rock with um fighting with my family but obviously with the outlaws you kind of did you make a was it a conscious choice to come back to the uk and kind of come back to your roots yes um it was it was the the the, the story the outlaws began at, uh, i was in america and i wrote it with this brilliant writer called elgin james who is a former boston gang member really interesting man spent a year in prison um, whereas i've spent very little time in prison <laughs> <laughs> i know we were just looking up so like we, I, look, we were looking up Elton James the other day and I was like, this must have just been a bizarre meeting of <laughs> Stephen Merchant yeah. and this guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No. And so um, so it began life as a sort of movie idea, but because there were so many characters, it occurred to us that um, it was a bit unwieldy as a film because the film you know, tends to only have, we have one or two protagonists, whereas this had so many, as you mentioned earlier, it's kind of an ensemble thing. So um, uh, it felt like it worked better as a TV show. And then the more I thought about it, it was like, well, we talked about setting it in different places. We talked about it being in LA and London, and then it sort of, well, hang on. They're, A, they're quite overfished. Like, you know, lots and lots of films and TV shows are in those, in those towns. Yeah. But also because it had sort of began life inspired by my mum and dad who did work for community service. Um, the more I talked about it, the more it seemed like Bristol felt like an obvious backdrop, you know, that sort of somehow I, like I said before, I knew where everybody would live and I sort of knew the DNA of it somehow. And I liked the idea of taking somewhere quite provincial and then making it seem epic, you know, yeah. which is why I wanted to call it The Outlaws and why it was, it has that sort of spaghetti Western kind of music yeah. here and there, you know, nods to that. So the idea that you take a very provincial town and a very set, provincial set of characters, but you tr somehow you make their lives seem more epic than they are. Yeah. Uh, which doesn't work as well when you're in somewhere like Los Angeles, which already feels epic. Yeah, <laughs> it's already got that connotation of bigness, making giving Bristol the the stage like that. I loved that because I know I know I've got you know I have some connection to Bristol myself. My aunt's from there. Danny, you went to university down in Bristol. Right? I, I I used to have a friend there, so yeah, I used yeah. to visit there a lot. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So it's great to see the heart of the city. It's a very distinctive place, Bristol. I really yeah. like it. And it's, yeah. And it oozes yeah. yeah. Bristol. And as if they didn't love you enough down there, Steve. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Put them on the map yeah. now with a yeah. celebrated <laughs> prodigal son of Bristol. Well, I, let's be honest. I'm just, everything I do is I'm working towards some kind of ticker tape parade in Bristol. I think there's an empty plinth for a statue, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'll, leave, I'll leave it to those guys to, uh, to make that decision. I don't know. <laughs> We'll sway their vote. <laughs> Steve, I mean, there's one thing I was going to ask you. I mean, obviously, um, The Office um, was, was what it was, a TV show, but obviously Ricky brought out the, the Life on the Road film. Was there ever a moment when there was a talk of it being an Office film rather than a David Brent film? Or, or is, is it something that he was just keen to pursue with, with the character on, it, on his own? We never talked about it as a film I, I, with all the characters. I think that, you know, I think when you've got a character like that sort of that you can inhabit so effortlessly like Ricky mm -hmm. you know there's an inevitable desire to sort of go back to the well right because it's just so it's just such a perfectly formed character mm. and it now has so much kind of uh backstory mm -hmm. um but my feeling has always been that sort of you can't the, the a reunion show is not a good idea that it's mm. better to let it just be sort of fixed in amber really yeah because i just don't think it will ever be the same i mean even if we could get all those actors back and we could afford them all um, <laughs> i just think i think it's just better to let it exist in your imagination in terms of what where they all are and what what is the relationship between tim and dawn and, and, and are they still there and and do they have a kid and you know and i think it's sort of nicer all of that just to be sort of left yeah, we agree. I, well, we, that's the, I, I certainly don't think we would have been, well, I, I, maybe we would have, but like, I think the reason we're here 20 years later and there's fans, fans listening to this podcast 20 years later and kind of, you know, talking about it online 20 years later is that that kind of, that idea of like, it's it kind of didn't finish and it is kind of, there is more kind of life to it and you can kind of, you, you can think about it yourself and you can question what happened. And But it's such a perfect formula, you know, the, the, the six episodes, six episode special, it just seems to work so, so mm. perfectly. And there's mm. so much being brought back nowadays. You know, there's the new Matrix film coming out soon. You know, mm. it's, it, everything has a sort of a cycle, you know, to sort of swing back around. And it's sort of, we love the fact that it hasn't come back mm. in a way. Well, I also think there's a urge now to try and make everything into a franchise. And, yeah. and mm. some yeah. things just don't have enough... Um, meat on the bone to be a franchise mm -hmm. you know I mean not, yeah. not everything can be 15 different spin-off movies like some oh, yeah. it sort of is what it is you know and um and so i feel like that with the office i mean the only regret i have i think is that i think perhaps retrospectively i wish we had done a third series mm. rather oh, than yeah. just the specials I, I i think i think partly just selfishly because i think i don't think we realize quite what we had on our hands you know yeah. I mean, we did you know we did in as much as we knew people had were enjoying it and things but i i think we probably thought this is easy yeah you know we can just keep doing this with just different shows and different ideas and different like you know what i mean we sort of hit it out the park in our first one so like how hard can it be yeah and obviously now i realize it's much harder than you think um but also i just think that i don't know i feel like we could have just could have just been like you know one more series of six to sort of tell the story and i don't know i mean it's not that i feel that there's anything left unsaid as it were i just think it could have been fun to mm. to do one more uh, at the time i mean rather than going back to it it always looked like it but it is fun. fun 
it always looked like it was a lot of fun to make like you guys were genuinely enjoying that process we were but i think it's funny that because i definitely remember us feeling like exhausted oh, when we did that yeah. we sort of we had ran out we were worried that we were sort of repeating ourselves yeah. in the second series and, the, and the, it was going to start feeling um oh how many times can david sort of say the wrong thing yeah, you know? and, yeah. and it start we were worried i think that it would feel sitcommy yeah uh, and, and so i think that that was probably why we and and again perhaps again with the experience now I, perhaps we would have got other writers or something you know just to make sure that we'd injected yeah you know some other collaborators so inject it with some some other dna that just make kept it fresh or something i don't know um but it seemed a lot more work than than it probably was you know i, mean, I suppose you, you you could have done what the office us did um so successfully which you know David Brent could have left. You could have brought in a new boss. You know, it's 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 called the office. So you could have had a revolving door of, uh, of cast members. But it is it's so it's it's such a perfect artifact. And I like none of us would change it for the world. No, no, and no. yeah, I I you know well. I, I think you do know how how kind of much people appreciate it and love it. And and you've kind of created this thing that kind of will kind of well. It's already lasted generations, but it's going to kind of carry on. And I think in in another twenty years, you know. There'll still be people talking about it. We'll still definitely still be talking about it and watching it. Quoting well, it. Maybe not in a podcast. <laughs> but my concern is that because of COVID, you know, offices will become obsolete. Yeah. So it will just people like younger generations be like, what where are these people working? <laughs> Why are they all in ties and suits? Yeah. <laughs> What's a paper company? You know? yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So we, we've had you for so for almost an hour and a half. So I mean thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time. We 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 didn't expect this much time. So if you if you know we we could go on talking to you for hours, but we're just yeah, we don't so want to hold you. We don't want to hold no, you. it is it is enjoyable talking to you, but I think I might need to uh, go and eat now before computer. One thing I was going to say, and you don't have to do this if you don't want to, but it'd be really cool if, if you did. So uh, if you've got, um, we were hoping to maybe bring back uh, Hip Hop Parade to sort of sign off the episode. So if you maybe want to, if you're up for announcing maybe your favourite hip hop track and we'll we'll play that into the, into the, into the fade. But we, yeah. My favourite hip hop track. I mean, that is, well, a, that is yeah. tricky, isn't it? Uh, there's loads of great stuff on the Outlaws. Yeah, yeah, I could recommend a few. There is, <laughs> isn't there? But um, no, I think the one that I still love. I just don't always think it's so it's so joyous, and and the intro alone is pleasure. That um, uh, I don't even remember what hip hop did I did I Sorry, did I, I just uh, say? Uh, and here's a hip hop track. I don't I'll, even remember. Like, did it have uh, a jingle? I I'll, do the, I'll do the jingle. I'll do the jingle, and then okay. I'll throw it to you to, to announce the track. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So thank you so much, Steve, for coming with us on this episode. It's been an absolute dream come true to um, spend some time with you. And, and obviously you're so busy at the moment. So we really appreciate the time um, that you've spent with us. Um, and to end us the show, we thought we'd do something special, uh, bring back a feature from the XFM days. It's time for Hip Hop Hooray with Steve Merchigar. So Steve, it's over to you to announce a song for our outro. One of my all-time favourite guys. Enjoy this one. Thank you so much for having me on the show. As you listen to Mama Said Knock You Out by Mr. LL Cool J.
And um, just before we start, Steve, have you got a like a hard out you need to adhere to? Have you do you need to leave at any particular time? Well, I mean, <clears throat> how long does it normally take? I mean, are we are we gonna are we gonna be all right? <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. No, no, we were thinking maybe. I mean, at most an hour, if that's okay. okay. Yeah, sure. yeah, cool. All right. Should have started right. with a higher number. Should have gone five hours. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was poor negotiating. 